The Zooier Than Thou podcast contains mature content and language and may not be suitable for younger audiences. Thanks for your understanding. Zooier Than Thou is on. You can join the howl. Zooier Than Thou is on. You can join the howl. Greetings, my friends and fellow zoos, and welcome to another uplifting episode of the zooiest of zooey podcasts, Zooier Than Thou. I'm Fausti, a gray muzzle zoo, adding my oldster perspectives to the podcast. <laughs> and this is Toggle. Don't mind me, I'm just cloud surfing behind this plane like Kit Cloudkicker. We have the honor of serving you as co-hosts for this episode of Zooier Than Thou. I don't know about you, Fausti, but I am still feeling that zoo pride high from earlier this month. Indeed, indeed. Speaking of zoo pride... It's really been something to see how all the other zoo podcasts celebrated. Oh, yeah. Of particular note, Zoo Stradamus's podcast made some very favorable predictions about the health of the zoo community in the coming future. Mm. And given their history of making impressively accurate predictions in the past, let's hope this one comes true, eh? Yeah. Oh, and Radio Dog Lovers went a bit more avant-garde and just played a solid hour of dogs barking over Down Tempo Beach, which was interesting. <laughs> and they're always one step ahead of the game, if I'm being perfectly honest. And we're nowhere near cool enough to pull off a stunt like that, <laughs> obviously. Though I must say, RDL made it work, and made it work with their usual panache and fashionable je ne sais quoi. Oh, yes, it was surprisingly listenable. And our colleagues over at the venerable Zootopia podcast. Uh, Zootopia. They had to change it, remember? Oh, right. Sorry. Uh, there's some blurry bits in the spring months on account of some of the cancer treatment I've been through, and from time to time I do lose data points. About Zoo Utopia? Uh, right again. So, Zoo Utopia actually covered the Zoo Pride Parade over in Pittsburgh live. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't able to attend uh, myself, cancer, though I heard from friends that it was quite the shindig. Yeah, they actually had a lot more attendees than the Street Pride Parade back in Seattle a few years back. <laughs> That's actually not saying much. But whatever the case, it was a real treat to listen to the live coverage real time. Needless to say, we are visibly swollen with pride here at Zooier Than Thou, and it seems <laughs> that some of our listeners felt the same. After our episode aired, we got a couple more audio submissions, so we thought we'd play them for you now. I admit I was a little skeptical at the concept of Zoo Pride. I guess I thought that it might be some kind of shameless self-promotion. While I'm not really interested in self-promotion, I am shameless. And I think that if the culmination of all this is that zoo sexuality becomes ubiquitous and otherwise unremarkable in the context of someone's whole other life, it's a really good thing. And I'm happy to be a part of it. For me, Zoo Pride is beyond just being proud of yourself or being who you are and being able to stand up to anyone who will judge you for that. It's also the ability of being proud in the relationships that you can form with animals and the ability to treat them as people. Speaking personally, I have been deeply touched by many of the listener submissions on the topic of Zoo Pride. In addition to the wonderful diversity of views on what Zoo Pride means to each of us, the overall zeitgeist of the community, the pride in our collective pride, as it were, comes mm -hmm. through in each and every one of these submissions. Bravo, fellow Zeus. 
And without further ado, let's dive into this episode's late arriving batch of Zoo Pride submissions. First up, here's a Zoo Pride submission from our friendly neighborhood Zoo Sexual. Subject, hey, I think I might be late, so if that's the case, sorry, and do whatever you like. Well, what we'd most like to do, friendly, is share your comments, so off we go. <laughs> friendly writes, what does Zoo Pride mean to me? For me, Zoo Pride means never having to be ashamed of who I am, that the sexuality that I just happen to have makes me neither hero nor monster, but instead it's our actions that make us who we are. Zoo Pride means allowing myself to live my fullest potential, even if there are those who may hate or fear us for existing. The hope that greater things will come, and most important of all, the celebration of all the wonderful non-human relationships in my life this far whether they were platonic or otherwise. As for the Zoo Pride day slash week, which until just a little while ago I didn't even know was a thing, that is until I started listening to your show, thanks for that by the way, Zoo Pride day slash week also reminds me that we may have a long ways to go, but it's things such as this show where people can hear from zoos who are actually decent people that brings us a whisker closer. Well, we certainly hope it's a hair more than just a whisker friendly. <laughs> Though we certainly agree that there's much work yet to be done and many challenges yet in store. Even so, your focus on living to our collective fullest potential certainly resonates with me personally. Mm. And it's great to hear that you are also seeing this as a central element of our pride in ourselves. Friendly continues, Also, speaking of your show, I think both of your humor is spot on. And poor Toggle totally sounds like he's got balls. Lol. See, even the listeners know that rat balls are massive and they drop during times of arousal or dominance. You must not feel very dominant then, because <laughs> those balls, they haven't dropped yet. I'm not talking hypothetically, mind you. Sitting here right now, oh I can see since like so many rats, for whatever reason, Toggle wears this weird ass outfit that covers his top half, but <laughs> leaves his boy parts visible for all the world to see. If he had boy parts, that is, which I'm not quite sure he does, to be honest. Oh my God. Never seen him, not even once. Fausti's just jealous because I don't have to worry about sitting on my balls all the time. <laughs> I'm more than happy to work around the management issues involved in having actual testicles, actually, <laughs> for a whole host of reasons. One of which is, frankly, that it's a hell of a lot better than sounding like some kind of Mickey Mouse motherfucker. Oh, don't Excuse let me, me reach over there and rip that Prince Albert right out of your cock. <laughs> oh, hey now, no need for violence. <laughs> Someday, perhaps, you'll manifest balls. <laughs> and then you'll understand what you've been missing thus far. Patience, my friend, patience. <laughs> One of these days, you'll see, you'll wake up and think, these aren't my glasses. The elk does that even mean? <laughs> Don't worry. There's a furry out there laughing right now, and that's good enough for me. Oh, heavens. Furry and jokes. <laughs> I shouldn't be surprised. Okay, do you have more to share from that letter, Mr. Rat? Uh, yes. Uh, it concludes, thank you for putting on this show. I know right now it's just a grain of sand on a whole beach of other more mainstream zoo podcasts, but I think your day will come. We like to think that on the great beach that is the universe of zoo podcasts, <laughs> Zooier Than Thou is just a beautiful little shell. Sure, we're on the fringe of that beach, but our fringe existence is 100% pure fabulous. <laughs> Thanks so much, friendly neighborhood zoo sexual. Stay proud and stay defiant. Okay, who's next, Toggle? That would be this heartwarming letter from Canis Gnosis who wants to say, thank you. Canis writes, howdy there, fellow zoos. Firstly, I'd like to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Between the fragmentation and disillusionment of our community, the constant witch hunt, and having lost my canine partner some years back, my own mental health, much less any sense of pride in myself, had been worn down to the quick. About two weeks ago, as of this writing, 
Some anti-Sue shitstorming over on Twitter had done a number on my state of mind, pushing me to seek out something, anything, Zoo-related and positive left on the internet. And that's when I stumbled across Zooier Than Thou. I cannot fully put into words the difference I feel now. Not only is you guys' podcast positive, it's optimistic. Let's just say that Zooier Than Thou and I are on the same page when it comes to opinions on morality, visibility, and Zoophilia's place in the world. I haven't felt anywhere near this much pride in who I am or in my community in a very long time. A long-lasting bout of depression I had been struggling with has broken, and my spirits are as high now as when I first joined the online Zeta community almost 20 years ago. Zooier Than Now has got me seriously thinking on ways I can help out with the cause of zoo sexual rights and positive visibility. I already circulated the tapes, as it were, to all of my Zooey and Zooish friends online who seemed just as hungry for this kind of content as I was. There are a plethora of Zetas within both the furry and other game communities, neither closeted, self-hating, or just with their heads down, who desperately need to hear a self-affirming, pro-zoosexual voice. They just need to hear it. It's amazing what a little pride and a little hope for the future can do for someone. Thank you again. Wow. Toggle and I were actually just talking about the podcast recently in the context of my own health challenges, which is to say a diagnosis of terminal cancer. And I can say that the work we've done on the podcast since its launch earlier this year has been a high point for me on so many levels. Mm. It's been an honor to be part of this project. More, it's reinforced for me the value of positive, forward-looking approaches to community questions. And that's actually helped me through some incredibly tough times as well, like dealing with chemo-related ugliness during the past few months. Knowing that our work in turn helps others is just the sort of virtuous feedback loop we all hope to be part of. You know, when I first read this letter, it made me feel so happy. I just I just had to share it on Twitter. Every now and then we get messages like these that, that affirm that we're doing the right thing by putting together this podcast. I've never worked on anything that gave me such a sense of goodness and purpose like Zooier Than Now does. If we make the life of even one animal or one zoo better, then every moment we pour into this is worth it. So hearing this sort of thing gives me strength to persevere. Thanks, Canis Gnosis. You really did make my day with your email. I'm so glad that we could have a positive impact on your life. We've had quite a few more emails come our way recently, but we're going to hold on to them until the next New Moon episode for now. Even if we haven't responded yet, we do read every email that comes across our desk, and we do respect when messages are marked as private, so don't hesitate to send your thoughts along. We'll keep them private if you request it. Even though it's a wonderful problem to have, by now we could actually easily fill each episode with nothing but readings of submissions from listeners. However, there's more to share than just these wonderful messages, so we'll keep doing our best to highlight those that resonate most strongly. All right, Fausti, what is today's primary focus? This episode, we're exploring the various ways in which today's zoos have chosen to build our lives. And in doing so, we're reminded of just how diverse, creative, and flexible zoos are when it comes to structuring our life paths and integrating our zooish identities with the rest of our most important attributes. There's no one right way to, quote, be zoo, unquote. Indeed, take 100 zoos, and we'll have 100 different and complementary ways of being zoo. Whilst there's some things about us that do bind us together into a community, our respect for our non-human peers, our empathy, our ability to build deep relationships beyond the confines of human existence, those commonalities exist alongside the wondrous diversity of Zoish experience and Zoish living arrangements we see out there. Mm -hmm. 
this episode, we turn our focus to that diversity and to the wisdom to be found in learning from how others have crafted their own zoo lives. All right. And coming up next, a word from our sponsors, then an interview with a zoo-exclusive listener, Yankee Doodle Donkey. Don't change that dial. Or these newfangled podcasty things don't even have dials, do they? <laughs> no. Anyhow, don't change whatever the controls are on your podcast player. And we'll be right back with more Zooey Good Times. This week's episode is brought to you by Zooville. It's like Whoville, but for zoos. We know you're just here for the articles. And also by Zed's Zooey Bed and Breakfast. Si, hablamos español. No estoy en la oficina en este momento. Envíanos cualquier trabajo para traducirlo. And finally, Zooier Than Thou is brought to you by the letter P. Because who doesn't like P? Besides, Z won't return our calls. Uh, hey, uh, is this seat taken? No, I have a seat. You must be new around here. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Ugh. They're short conscripting soldiers younger and younger these days. Pretty sure this kid's balls haven't even dropped. Hey, I'm old enough to kick your ass. <laughs> Relax, kid. He's just teasing you. Sit down, have a bite to eat. We've got a long way to go tomorrow. Uh, hey, so... Y'all have been here for a while, right? You could say that. Seen countless battles and still not dead yet. <laughs> so, what's the deal with the king? <laughs> You're gonna have to be more specific, kid. King Alexander has a number of uh, <laughs> charming eccentricities, shall we say. Well, I just noticed he seems to have a way with horses. Or a specific horse, really. In a pretty specific way. You mean his boyfriend, Bucephalus? Boyfriend? Oh, yeah. Those two are a total power couple. Practically inseparable. Nothing quite like the bond between a Macedonian man and his horse. But these two are on a whole nother level. Uh, Yeah, I couldn't help but notice the way they... (laughs) interact with each other. Hand in glove, you might say. Boy, you don't know the half of it. Oh, they say old Bucephalus was completely untamable. He's a beauty of a fellow, though, ain't he? But when the merchant brought him to King Philip, no one could tame that handsome big brute. Philip was just going to turn the merchant away, but the stallion caught our Prince Alexander's eye, and he proposed that if he could tame the horse, his father must purchase him at once. Well, yikes. King Alexander does seem to have quite an intimidating presence. I imagine he completely dominated the big beast. Hardly. He was only ten years old. Really? How did he dominate such a powerful horse, then? Well... He stood and observed him quietly. Then he noticed that the horse was particularly sensitive to moving shadows. So when Prince Alex approached Bucephalus, he did so aware of the play of shadows and how those shadows would appear to the skittish horse. Just like that, Alex was able to earn Bucephalus' trust and from there he was riding the stallion shortly thereafter. Wow, well that seems so simple. Yeah, simple if you speak horse, maybe. All the other men tried to force their will on the stallion, but Alex alone thought to listen to the animal and work with him on his terms. Pretty impressive for a ten-year-old kid. Now they're butt buddies. Only, it's hard to tell who's on top, since both of them are such dominant assholes. <laughs> well, you really think so? <laughs> kid, I don't know if you noticed, but 
King Alexander fucks just about anyone who catches his eye, man or woman. You really think it's so far-fetched he's fucking his horse? Or the other way? Or both at once, who fucking knows? Well, I guess that's not so far-fetched. I've certainly never seen a horse so devoted to a man before like that. Or a man so entirely devoted to a horse. Oh man, kid. You weren't here when the horse got kidnapped. Kidnapped? Oh yeah, so get this. As King Alex moved us forward on a campaign, Bucephalus was entrusted to staff so as to give him a rest from his duties as a battle steed. Coming up behind the front lines, the group that was caring for Bucephalus was beset by mountain bandits looking to score some treasure. Once they realized that they had actually captured King Alex's beloved stallion, they immediately let it be known that they would return the horse to Alex upon payment of a ransom. Oh dear. I can't imagine that went well for them. About as well as it could go. Most generals wouldn't have thought twice about a horse. Lose a horse, get another one. Oh, but not King Alex and his Bucephalus. Oh, the king was fucking furious. It wasn't a matter of pride or ego, neither. He was just worried sick about the safety of his horse boyfriend. <laughs> so the king laid it out for them. Unless Bucephalus was returned to him, safe and sound, immediately. Alexander would personally lead his army into the mountains where he would kill every man, woman, and child of the hill tribes responsible for abducting his beloved. No exceptions, no mercy. Holy shit! And you know he'd do it too, over fucking horse no less. Well, these guys were so spooked by his threats that they brought Bucephalus back to King Alexander immediately. Oh wow, I imagine he killed the shit out of them. You'd think. No, he treated them with honor, and he actually paid their fucking ransom. Just so happy to have his boyfriend back. Imagine the great King Alexander with his white, hot, bloodthirsty fury feeling so damn relieved that instead of offering them, he showed mercy and gratitude. That's actually pretty strange. Yeah, not when you consider how much he fucking loves that horse. I'm telling you, kid, those two are a total power couple. Uh, so everyone's just... Okay, with the king, uh, dating a horse? Are you going to go up to the great King Alexander, the Conqueror, and tell him that fucking a horse grosses you out? Oh, gosh. I guess not. Yeah, it's not really a big deal. He's conquering the world in the name of Macedonia. No one really cares who he fucks. Oh, and he's fucking everyone out here. He likes him as handsome young men, too, so you watch yourself, kid. Oh, oh well, uh... You know, I don't mind so much about that. I guess I don't really care about the horse either. I just thought it was kind of strange and remarkable. If you don't eat your food, someone else is going to eat it for you. Yeah, let's talk more, Chow. We've got a lot to do tomorrow, and you're going to need everything you have. And you ain't got no big brave stallion standing behind you, ready to save your ass when it's needed, and service it when you're needy. So you best get your shit together like the rest of us mere mortals and stop daydreaming about King Alexander and his Bucephalus and what they're probably doing right this very moment in the general's camp. Uh, oh, uh, yes sir. Welcome back fellow zoos. Uh, today we have an interview with another of our illustrious zoo community. I'd like to welcome Doodle Donkey. Hey folks. Our Yankee Doodle Donkey. I will, I will oh. always call you that forever. Thanks. Thanks so much. So patriotic. <laughs> it is the month for patriotism. <laughs> Apparently. Let me get my flag out. 
Hey, dude, dude, where'd you get that name, actually? Um, originally, it was kind of just like a goof-around thing, because I like to draw a lot, and I thought donkeys were kind of cool. It's like, well, this is a name. Then huh. it's like on um, Gen 4 of My Little Pony, they come out with a character, Cranky Doodle Donkey, and everyone's telling me, oh, that's you, that's totally you. I'm like, okay, I'll roll with it. <laughs> I was like, so there it sits. Ah, so it's Cranky Doodle Donkey, not Yankee Doodle Donkey. Well, originally it was just That's Doodle funny. Donkey, like literally a Doodle Donkey, but it kind of morphed into Cranky Doodle Donkey. Oh, so you were you were a Doodle of a Donkey? Pretty much. That's I think that's cool. I'm I'm pretty much thinking we're just gonna know you was Cranky from this point forward. Now that you told us that story. <laughs> yeah. All right, Cranky. Here we go. Oh, well, it is pretty much now. <laughs> so let me ask you. Let me ask you kind of a, a, a sort of a big question. What was the process by which you came to understand that you were a zoo? Was it gradual all at once or something that was in a sense a part of you that you always knew was there? Kind of a mix of the last two. Um, it was definitely gradual and something that it was always part of me from the get go. It just took me a really long time to kind of figure out a name for it and find out exactly how to identify myself and say who I was. Mm -hmm. um, Going back to when I was younger and growing up, um, when I got to that age where typically boys are going to be interested in girls, I had zero interest whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And around that time, for some reason, I started noticing horses. It's like, hey, they look pretty damn nice. <laughs> and I started doing a lot more research to learn about them in general, basic care, that kind of thing, and started volunteering at an equestrian center. I oh. was there for about seven or so years. And during that time, I learned everything, everything I personally could use. Um, met a lot of horses there, made a lot of friends out there, horses, um, <laughs> and started to realize that my sexual interests and relationship interests only lie with mares. I see. And kind of blossomed from there. Um, That's such a cool opportunity yeah. to be able to go and volunteer at this, at like a... Was it a stable, you said? Yeah, it was a boarding stable. Or equestrian from, syndrome, that's what it was. Yeah, went from volunteering to working there. Oh, nice, full-time. Yeah. When you started working there, was that, like, in your teens or, like, in, into your adulthood there? Um, when I first started working out there, I was about 14. Um, I was out there up until about five years ago. Oh, cool. That was a number of years. So, uh, actually, If I may ask... Yeah. If I may ask, when you began to become aware of your appreciation for mares, which I must say is uh, certainly an appreciation that I can respect. Um, anybody who doesn't appreciate mares, you have to <laughs> wonder what's wrong with them, I would say, personally. <coughs> mares are amazing people and uh, amazing uh, colleagues and amazing friends. And when you became aware that your interest in and appreciation for mares was becoming more intimate, did you already understand that there was a category of people uh, known as zoos and that that interest that you were starting to feel fit in that category? Or was this interest something that developed without your awareness that there was a category of people that have this kind of attraction to others. I was always aware that this kind of attraction was a thing, but okay. I had been taught it was just an unusual thing, an anomaly, okay. not something normal. Okay. So I was always aware there was something out there, but I didn't know there was a name for it. And 
at the very beginning, I felt like there was something wrong with me, that maybe I had some disease in my head or something, something to screw with me. And it took me a few years to come to the conclusion that there's nothing wrong with me. And I just kind of started to come to accept it. And of course, ran into everyone's favorite place, Beastful. <laughs> and surprisingly found some positive and useful information on there that helps me continue to build who I was to come to an understanding of exactly who I was and that, yeah, there's nothing wrong at all. This is completely normal. So actually, that, that leads into our next question, which is, as you came to be aware of your identity as a zoo, how did that awareness integrate with your overall self-image? In, in what ways did that awareness shape or influence your expectations about how your life path would be developing from there? Uh, that is a complex question. Yeah, it kind of is. Sorry. <laughs> um, oh, no, I'm just like trying to process that. It kind of made it more of... I made sure to be able to have time to spend with other horses and had decided I was going to get a mare for myself. Um, and happenstance happened, sorry, incorrect words. Um, I ended up meeting a mare who I ended up falling for and ended up purchasing her. And pretty much I've continued to dedicate my time not only to her, but to working with other horses too and trying to help. You know, that's really interesting how you say that because you, uh, this is something that I was talking with the zoo that visited us um, just a, a couple of days ago, uh, the idea that with with canine partners, we usually don't have a chance to, if you will, like court our canine partners. Like there's no like chance to like like with human relationships, there's a dating process, for instance, where you get to get to know someone and decide how how that's going to go forward. And with canines, uh, canine relationships, you don't really get to have that process. What you said about how you fell in love with a mare before deciding to purchase her stood out to me for that reason. Um, was she one of the ones that you worked with at the Equine Center? Correct. Um, I was taking care of her full time for about, I'd say about a year before I ended up purchasing her. That's, that's so I, I have cool. to ask the question. I have to ask the question because I, I well, I, I'll share why I ask afterwards, perhaps. When you fell for her or uh, she um, used her Mary Wiles uh, to <laughs> seduce you, whichever way we want to say that. <laughs> was it love at first sight or was this something that evolved over time uh, sort of in a, in a slow, um, gradual process or was it something that uh, came all at once? Kind of a combination of both. Um, obviously, she's a very fantastic looking mare to begin with. <laughs> and I, right off the bat, when I first started working with her, I fell in love with her personality. She is fan-freaking-tastic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, tooting her horn for her. Um, but it, it, it was something that I'd already started off with a good amount of attraction to begin with, and as time went on, we just kind of grew closer and closer together. Warms my heart, doodle. So it, it built over time. Um, it, it's definitely, I ask that question whenever I can of, of my fellow zoos. Uh, my, myself, personally, I would say that my relationships over time have been probably split 50 50, as, as you say, that kind of builds over time. Maybe that's the majority of, of relationships I've had in my life. And yet there have been more than a handful of times when I have had the love at first sight thing that happened just right off the bat. And uh, that is an amazing experience to have. I always try to find other people who have lived that because it's 
hard to put into words what that's like. <clears throat> yeah, I think I think for a lot of people, yep. even <clears throat> whether they're zoos or not, there's an initial mm-hmm. attraction to someone that makes you gravitate towards them, so that you have the opportunity to get to know them. Uh, well spoken. Spark. Right. There's a spark. There's mm-hmm. something that's spark. the, the spark. je ne sais quoi, mm-hmm. as you said earlier, Fausti. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Just the, say the exactly more quote. <clears throat> I'm really interested in you, and I want to get to know you. Um, and I think that's generally how relationships develop, because otherwise you don't, uh, except for in incidental circumstances where you're just kind of thrown in with someone where you have to get to know them. You know, there's usually some sort of attraction that brings you to them and helps you get mm-hmm. to know them, and then develop a relationship from there. So fair enough. I think either way is actually pretty healthy. Agreed. So. As you identified as a zoo, now let me, let me kind of frame it this way: you, you start out with this kind of sense that you're an anomaly. At at one point, did you realize that zoophile was a word that you identified with, and how did that affect your self-image? That's something I learned from my short time on Beast Form, or that imploded upon itself. <laughs> um, I had been curious, trying to find out are there other people like me. I thought, like I had an idea it's like there's no way in hell I'm the only person on the face of the earth like this and I turned to good old Google (laughs) you know the most secure and best place to be looking things like this up of course (laughs) and it directed me straight to Beast Forum and I started reading a lot of um, people's articles and posts they had on there about it and kept seeing this word popping up of zoo and I was wondering are they what the heck are they talking about I mean like a petting zoo or something and <laughs> come to find out it meant zoo file it's like wait a minute I never heard that word before I only knew the word um, bestiality it's the only word I knew of at the time right. mm-hmm. and from reading things on there I came to know what a zoo file was and came to realize that wait a minute I'm a zoo file <laughs> that it, while my attraction lies specifically in horses, I can recognize this in any other species out there that everyone has well, their own sexual needs, everyone has their own emotions, emotional needs, you name it. That every animal species out there has something a little more than most other people seem to see in them. Right. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm wishing that I could see the, uh, the, the Google search <laughs> phrase that you first used. <laughs> And I'm imagining it's. Uh, I remember it too. If you want to hear uh, it, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess uh, tongue in cheek, and then you can share what it actually was. I'm imagining you're sitting down at the computer after maybe spending an evening with your lady friend and <laughs> typing out after thinking on the the subject for a while, sitting down at, at Google and typing Fausty, out. Spit the fucking does, phrase out. <clears throat> Hey, you go ahead and push me, and then it'll be another five minutes before I even spit the phrase out. The uh, You're sitting there and you're typing, does anyone else appreciate how beautiful mares are? Enter. <laughs> or some such. Um, <clears throat> I know that's what I would have put in myself, but more importantly, what did you actually type in when you were looking for that information? Um, the first time I looked it up, and I'm sure I'm going to get laughed at for this because this was before going through the whole biology class thing. <laughs> I was like, can a person get a mare pregnant? Ah, I remember that. I remember that. Oh, yes. That, that is a... Oh, I... Yep. Oh that is... God. As so funny weird. as it seems, <laughs> at, so you know, as funny as it seems in hindsight, wow, there were probably moments in your youth, as in some of our other youths as well, where the fear of an unwanted pregnancy was absolutely a thing that kept oh us up God. late at night worrying. Oh, yeah. 
I oh, love yeah. that. That is the yeah. I was thing a little ever. concerned. I was I was concerned. I was like, um, okay, crap. We just did something. Is this gonna lead to like some <laughs> abomination? Like, uh oh. <laughs> I love that. And then biology class, I learned, oh, yeah, that's not going to happen ever. Your chromosomes don't quite match up. And the baby was going to yeah, look just like you, and everybody would have known, you know, it would have been so yeah, obvious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, and actually, a fear that I had was a possible false pregnancy, because I had a feeling that was a thing, too. What? Interesting. And also turns out to be nothing. False pregnancy? Fair enough. What is that? There, there are such things. I had heard of it happening in dogs. Yeah, more of a dog thing. I, it can happen in horses, but mm-hmm. usually it's a slipped foal in horses, not a false pregnancy. Technically, uh, mm-hmm. uh, dogs tend to have a lot more actual false pregnancies, according to the biology that I've read. But uh, huh. okay. <laughs> wow, I have to, uh, I have to interject the the gray muzzle uh, uh, experience for me to put in is that. There were years, now this is pre-internet, pre-Google, in in my ancient uh, uh, teenage years, there were years uh, in my teen years where I assumed, for a lack of other information, that I was the only human being, not only in the world, but ever in the history of human beings, who had this uh, intimate connection with other species. I I mean, I just figured it was just me i don't know I, I don't know how i came to that conclusion but until i was probably i don't know 18 19 years old the assumption was that i was the first person in the history of the universe who had ever realized this and as silly as that seems looking back why would i think i was the first person i don't know nobody talked to me about it otherwise and i just thought all right i've just discovered something entirely new for the human species <laughs> and uh, nowadays of course with google and and other tools of connectivity that kind of silliness is probably in the past but it was a thing well, for I mean, me it's, it's just kind of like childish egocentrism that's just what fair you enough think, is that I, I would i would absolutely agree with that yep yep yeah that's well that's very well said it was childish you, you know just assuming that it's a, the world is a small place and that i had discovered something new really no idea of the the depth of history and so forth yep that's really cool <laughs> thank you guys for sharing this because those are so, such interesting stories so looking at your life path as it has developed, we're going to use the phrase life path here. Uh, what do you feel is the impact that your identity as a zoo has had on your path? Ah, uh, well, it's definitely made my life a lot more um, equine centric, okay. so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I've dedicated a lot more of my time, not only just to taking care of my mare in general, but trying to help people with their horses too, because it, this seems to be a general thing that runs with most zoos is that animals tend to gravitate towards zoos, or at least people that seem to understand them. Right. And that seemed to be a thing with me too, with the horses at the equestrian center is a lot of people would be having problems with them or they couldn't work with them or some unusual thing. And they're trying to go with the classic, oh, they're just being barn sour. Oh, they're stubborn. And it's more of, I'm hearing what they're saying and their owners are not hearing. So I'm more or less kind of translating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really funny. <laughs> One of the zoos that came and visited us this past week uh, actually had visited you and said that you were kind of like a something of like a a horse whisperer yourself. <laughs> that's what everyone used to call me. <laughs> I think that's. Uh, I was like, okay. I have like the utmost respect for that. that. That is the coolest thing. I think people really don't don't really grasp that. Again, there, there are people that don't understand that animals communicate with us in ways that are super easy to pick up if you're just paying attention. Yep. (laughs) 
I, I have a hypothesis to share from from one horse person to another, and I'm curious to see whether uh, what your what your reaction to this hypothesis is. Honest reaction. I, I, over the decades, I have come to believe that if we take the population of people who are genuinely gifted with horses, uh, and I, I do use the the word gift. Particularly with horses, I think there is a certain thing that some of us have and most don't. Even those who are good with horses or or um, talent, maybe talented in riding or whatnot, there, there's an extra layer of gift that some have that are a, a special talent with horses in, in whatever equine field. I believe that the uh, percentage of zoos in that population of gifted horse people is enormously higher than in the general population not 100% but certainly higher than the background population do, do you have a hunch on that i'm just asking on a personal basis do you feel like gifted horse people are more likely to be zoos or do you think that those are unconnected between the two i uh, know i definitely think those are connected it seems that the vast majority of people who seem to have that gift are zoos i would agree and yeah. a lot of times i've, I've run into I'd say maybe two to three people that also seem to have that gift who definitely showed zoo tendencies, Agreed. I should say, without making it obvious. Agreed. Something that only another zoo could pick up. Absolutely agree. That has certainly been my experience for decades. I, I, I find it fascinating that even that you're that you're not directly disagreeing with it. I don't know how we'd ever prove that hypothesis, <laughs> but I would say in in my in my heart of hearts, I certainly know it to be true from a lifetime's experience. Well, I mean, like you got to think about what where we come from as zoos when we approach animals. Absolutely. It's completely different from everyone else, and just having that starting yep. place mm-hmm. leads you to a different understanding. Yes, agreed. Thank you for sharing that. That's fascinating. Yeah. And it's like a small miniature thought to add on top of that is a lot of people like to complain that horses are difficult to understand. You have to make them understand what you're saying and. <laughs> I think of it the other way around. It's more of you need to listen to your horse and they will tell you what you need to know. It just takes the extra time and the extra effort to find out what it is they're telling you instead of just trying to make them do something. Right. It's Absolutely communi- true. People don't understand that communication goes two ways. Mm-hmm. Or at least so much not with horses. When they're, not speaking to, when they're speaking to animals, that the communication goes both ways. As a prey species, so much with horses uh, hinges on listening. It, it is a, a skill mm-hmm. that even those who often work professionally with horses are, are have a terrible lack of. And uh, that ability and, and, and tendency, the intuition to know that the, the first step with any for. horse, absolutely. The intuition is to shut up and listen. As, as primates, we tend to be noisy and make <laughs> you know a lot of communications. And when we learn to be quiet is often when we develop the most knowledge about our equine friends. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. And any any time I spend with my mare, I mean, we can have, quote unquote, back and forth conversations without a single word being spoken. Mm-hmm. Everything can be spoken through body language, facial expressions, you name it. We can figure it out just from being there with each other and paying attention. Very true. It can be something as simple as we're just out and grazing and I can ask, hey, look, there's grass over here. Would you like to go this way? She'll follow me over there and I can motion towards a particular spot and she knows where I'm going and goes straight to that spot. If I ask her to move, I can just simply turn and look at where I want to go and she goes straight there. Very true. I don't have to say a word. I don't have to pull her over there. I don't have to nudge her in that direction. All I have to do is turn and look. Very and she true. knows. Very true. Yeah. It's interesting 
<clears throat> I got into a conversation with someone a little while ago, and it's like, a lot of these more domesticated animals, the ones that we tend to tend to have more attractions towards just because we're familiar with them, have basically evolved to communicate with us. Uh, the the difference the difference yeah. for that is that horses, equines, particularly given their longer lifespans and their longer reproductive cycle, the number of reproductive cycles within which horses have been in any way domesticated by human beings is so small. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not zero. And, and certainly domesticated horses are not the same genetically as, as the few bits of wild horse stock that are still left in the world. As compared to dogs, horses have not been shaped uh, genetically nearly to the degree right. that dogs have. And working with horses, I believe, requires humans to reach much further out of our zone and into equine zone uh, than does working with domesticated dogs who, as you say, have evolved in our, our Well, yeah, our dogs co- evolve in a lot, a lot more uh, malleable fashion uh, than a lot of other animals, yeah. for sure. And I, yeah, we've evolved together with definitely dogs agree with you in, there, in a boss, path. Go ahead. Oh, I was saying definitely agree with you there. That's something that I've had to learn, too, with working with any other horses, is I've spent a very large amount of time just watching natural herds, um, doing research on basic horse communication, just watching horses, interacting with horses and learning to mimic that behavior and figure out what it is they're saying, what's happening in the conversation, learning that for myself so I can communicate with them and they're on their own language without trying to make them understand something new that doesn't make sense to them. It makes more sense for me to understand them than the other way around. Right. Absolutely true. So let me ask you another question. It's kind of off the wall here. So comparing your early expectations like real early, like the first things you were thinking about how your zoo identity would impact your life path with the actual reality of how your life has progressed thus far. Do you think that your early expectations were largely proved correct? Or have you found that as it has evolved, you've veered far from what you had originally expected in terms of the impact of your zooishness on it? That's kind of the funny thing is I didn't really have an expectation for it. It was just kind of something that, all right, I... Here's a new new skill set to add to my toolbox here, and let's see what we can do with it. Fascinating. Um, Absolutely. I wasn't really sure to begin with. I thought something was going to go wrong, like, oh, crap, I'm going to get busted for something, or something's going to go screwy, and here goes down the, the bad path, and turns out that that bad path, while still there, is not exactly as uh, inevitable, easy to fall right. down as expected. Right. Very interesting. Yeah, I was wondering about that because it, it it's interesting how talking with actually Doug about how his original kind of like life view has, has kind of changed after after his initial expectations. Uh, just trying to understand their perspective from other people. I might be able to better answer that if I have more of a simpler definition of what you mean by life expectations. Oh, like you know, oh God, I'm a zoo, so this is how my life has to go now that I'm a zoo. I know that I, you know, have recognized that I'm attracted to horses. I guess that never really crossed my mind, to tell you the truth. I never really thought, okay, my life is now completely changing because of this. I just kind of grew up on it, and that's how it is. Cool. Which is a, a perfect example of the diversity of, of experiences in, in sort of growing up or becoming or, or stepping into, you know, a, a zoo identity. For me, the process of... Uh, 
accepting uh, that part of my identity as a teenager and then uh, molding my expectations of what life would be like, given that that was an essential component of me, it was it changed everything. And I just assumed that it would result in a complete remapping of all the ways that I would be a person because there was this thing in my life that obviously nobody else had ever bumped into in the history of the species. And I would need to invent an entirely new uh, way to live so that I could have this be part of who I was. And uh, again, this goes back to the era pre-internet. There didn't know anybody else who was even remotely Zooey at the time. And uh, boy, that's a change. And I can only imagine a change for the better for this to be something that comes up and is, okay, so, all right, that's a part of who I am. There you go. <laughs> like many other parts of who I am, uh, I can I can say that the sense of overwhelming um, before there was my life before this and my life after this, that sense of overwhelming uh, mandatory change was not a pleasant experience to experience as a teenager, particularly with nobody else to talk to about it. Mm. It was scary. It was terrifying, really. And it's good to hear that that's not true for everybody, because that certainly wasn't much. Yeah, fun. that's definitely kind of crazy to hear that. Just thinking about it, that's completely different than how my experience was at all. <laughs> as for me, the only that... big change I had to make was trying to figure out how to explain to people, why are you not looking at girls? Why don't you have a girlfriend already? Hey, why don't you go talk to, to Becky with the long hair? I'm like, because I don't care. And people started labeling me as an asexual. It's like, pretty much. And people started labeling me as an asexual. And it's like, well, I don't know what that is, so I'm just going to roll with that. And if it gets people to stop asking me, I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> yeah, <I think laughs> we actually, do what you got to uh, do, right? A lot right? of people have that, that sort of same, that same sort of, the, the experience you have with being gay is like, man, mm -hmm. my grandmother just keeps pressuring me to date this girl because she wants grandkids. <laughs> How do I tell her? I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not going to have grandkids, mm -hmm. Grandma. Mm -hmm. I suppose for me... You might, you might uh, have grand foals, but not grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose for me, thinking about it, the reason I didn't really have such a huge like life expectancy change from becoming a zoo is that I never really thought much of the future. I was more of living in the current moment of what I'm having to deal with at the time, living day to day. Not really Fair thinking enough. of, okay, how's this going to affect my future? How's this going to affect this? It was just kind of living. That's fucking cool, man. Fair enough. I agree. Yeah. Because yep. I, I, I remember I always, I've always been a, a rather ambitious rat. I was like, I'm going to be a famous filmmaker when I grow up. Or <laughs> I'm going to go into politics. Or, you know, I, just various different <laughs> things. Like, oh, well, <laughs> can't go into politics because I'm a zoo. So <laughs> how am I going to... But, it's crazy. It's it's funny as hell to say this, but that's so human. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, when people used to ask me, "What are you going to be when you grow up?" and I just said, "I don't know. Hopefully, I will have somewhere to live." Oh wow! <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Like Fair it's enough. pretty much all I was thinking of. It's like, well, I'm expecting to have a job that pays money and to have a home and to be living. Like that's pretty much all I had expecting. Wow. That is that is so alien to me. I I kind of think it's, yeah. it's fantastic. Actually, yeah. I wish I had that kind of simple, just the simple. Like there's a there's a simplicity to that that is you know kind of like how do I say this? A relief in a way. Yeah, it's something to always maybe think too. Is like maybe this is why I get along with the horses so well because they seem to be doing the same thing. <laughs> Very true. That's cool. Yep. So 
this is a this is a kind of a question that that, that uh, someone like Doug has not had to actually had the chance to, to do as he was growing up as a zoo probably. But in making choices about how to structure and build your life as a zoo, uh, have you looked to the community for examples, guidance, or advice, or have you largely relied on yourself first and foremost in terms of how to make choices that are well integrated with your Zoo-ish identity? Um, I'd say I did definitely look for advice during the, the BF days uh, when I had questions that I didn't know who am I supposed to be asking these questions of. Right. Questions I couldn't quite figure out on my own that obviously the horses couldn't answer for me. I turned to looking at articles on there and just punching in keywords and reading what came up and just kind of gathering information from there to figure out things I didn't quite get. Were you a lurker or a poster? Lurker. <laughs> I, I did post a couple of times, but it just got a lot of very mixed results, right. so I stopped posting until <laughs> just about nearing the shutdown. Let me ask you this. So, <laughs> when did you first discover Beast Forum? Um, I'd have to say... 2010-ish. Okay. Because okay. I was wondering, because it, it's like, it, it kind of felt like you were saying like you had just found it right before it shut down. Oh, no, I, I hadn't started posting until, I'd posting. say, about three yeah. months before the <laughs> shutdown. Just lurked yeah, for, for lurking nine and years. not posting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I posted in 2013, but it got me a lot of very uh, mixed results. I was kind of curious and thought, well, let me share some of my experiences, and it mostly got a lot of creepers, mm. so it's like, ah, I don't think I want to post here anymore. Mm, that's really very sexy. Mm. Well, that's pretty much what I got, was a lot of very um, sultry and <laughs> pretty pretty uh, gnarly results for what I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to, you know, rile up the creepers. I was just trying to, like, hey, here's my experience. How? What does everyone think? <laughs> like, yeah, I, I just feel like I just went down a dark alleyway yeah. in like, a bad part of L.A. That is... Oh, I'll just go ahead and creep on out of here. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Exit stage left. <laughs> Are you doing your toggle voice? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, don't worry. I can do Mickey Mouse, too, if I need to. Oh, my to. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's fantastic. Are you kidding me? That's what everyone tells me. <laughs> that is so That's good. what everyone tells me. <laughs> so... Uh, joys of being the class clown in school. Let me ask you this. How have you integrated your Zooey intimate relationship with other aspects of your intimate life? I understand you actually have a human girlfriend, even though you're mare exclusive. Yes, and I'm sure that surprises the vast majority of people. So how is, what is the um, dynamic of your relationship there? Oh boy, that is a really tricky one. <laughs> um, you can't make her mad now. Yes, She's going to uh, listen to your interviews. Yep, that's scary. Uh, blankety blank blank silence. There we go. <laughs> um, it was definitely a huge change because she was not a zoo. Um, so that was definitely a, a terrifying experience coming out to her because I was expecting her to essentially go screaming off into the hills. This guy is crazy. Get him away from me. Call the police. And that didn't happen. Oh. So it's it's been a very long journey uh, being in this relationship with her. I, I definitely wasn't expecting the relationship from the get go. I was more or less longing for some form of human companionship in the form of a friend. Right. Because mm -hmm. I didn't really have anyone to talk to. I could, of course, spend time with my mare and with any other horses. But there's, of course, that human element that all of us humans seem to need. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was bumped into her and we got into a relationship. And then after the whole coming out thing, it definitely changed absolutely everything. And it has <laughs> been one hell of a roller coaster, but I definitely wouldn't give it up. 
I'm glad to hear that. So what 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 kind of things changed? If you don't mind me asking, I know this is kind of prying into a, a more intimate part right. of your life, All so right. I apologize. You're good. I'll just keep it uh, anonymous. Well, yeah, definitely, please. Um, one hundred percent. Anonymous. Anonymous. Anyway, um, <laughs> it definitely had to change about how I would talk about my mare and how much I would show my girlfriend because she. We went through a phase of jealousy for a while. Yep, she's jealous um, of your mare. She yep. was obviously new to the whole concept. Well, yeah, she was trying to figure out why are you spending so much time with her and not me, this, that, and the other thing. And I had to explain to her that I, well, I mean, she's my girl. Like, I I know we're in a relationship, too, but it's like, it's... And, yeah. Yes. Good work. A lot of uh, expectations from her side of a, the standard uniform human relationship that to me were completely alien. So I, I'm going to ask a somewhat loaded question, but I'll ask anyway, and you're certainly welcome to answer or not answer at, at your discretion. Your expectations looking forward for your relationship with your girlfriend, uh, do you perceive this as being something that is stable over the long term, or do you worry that the jealousy issue will eventually turn into something that uh, becomes unmanageable? And I'd go with the second one. It's, it's been <laughs> a major roller coaster that, between jealousy yeah. and anger, and then to yeah. acceptance and nonchalant lack of reaction to anything, and then suddenly turning back into jealousy and anger. Yes. And yes. It's all over the board, so it's definitely not stable. Right. Uh, I wish you the best of luck with it, and Definitely. I hope that that doesn't uh, come to be the case. Yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, there's yep, probably obviously um, some compromise there that both of you have to do. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh time. yeah. Maintaining a, a human relationship when you're zoo exclusive is something that was very interesting to me. Um, well, you know, I'm not zoo exclusive, so it's very easy for me to kind of. There is an old rule of thumb that I was taught by uh, folks in the community before I was which is to say um, many, many eons ago. And the rule of thumb was, and I'm not saying this is true or not true, and uh, I'm, I'm neither uh, confirming this nor disagreeing with it, just passing it on as, as one of these old historical things, that uh, the rule was that it is possible, and this is, this is unfortunately sort of male-focused, uh, given that I'm a male, I don't know um, whether women uh, would have the same rule of thumb or not. I just want to flag that. Um, yeah, thank you. Concern. If you're if if you're a guy and you're a zoo, that it is possible, indeed not uncommon, to, if you're gay, to have a, a human boyfriend, and also have your zoo relationships, and that these can be stable, and and uh, durable over time. However, trying to mix a straight human relationship uh, with a woman into a zoo lifestyle for a guy, the rule of thumb is that it always ends in tears. And um, That's kind of lame. The, the way it is, yeah, but the way this was presented to me was we, we would go through a list of, okay, how many zoos do you know that are guys that have girlfriends that have not ended badly? And we would all kind of sit around a table and be like, um... Uh, um, <laughs> nobody could, we used to have one example. There was one example. I'm, I'm, I'll pass on naming who he was very well known in old school zoo. And we would always say, well, that's the example that proves the rule. That example actually eventually blew up over, over time ah. in a disaster scenario, j jealousy. 
And so the the only example that I knew of now, I, there's got to be other examples out there that mm-hmm. actually have worked. Right. But that was the the rule of thumb I was handed, and it did it, it has proved true from what I've seen. I always hope that somehow it's wrong and that others are having great success with those mixed relationships. And I certainly hope that you have great success in a mixed relationship. I know that historically the community has seen those as challenging primarily because of the jealousy issue. Well, you know, that's interesting because I think we can kind of compare that to a polyamorous human relationship where jealousy kind of rears its ugly head. Um, and it's not necessarily, I don't think it's, it has anything to do with uh, female partners as much as it has to do with um, uh, gay culture, for instance. We're talking about male-male relationships. In gay mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. polyamory or even open relationships are more accepted as, a, as part of our culture. Very true. Uh, whereas with um, straight, straight couples, culture is more monogamous. Uh, and expectations right. of like, you know, what what happens in there is um, are different. And I think Very true. what it, it's not because you're in a relationship with a woman. It's because that you don't have you did not develop the right kind of trust in those relationships because of the cultural norms. I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I, I really think it's more of a cultural thing than than a matter of like, uh, you know, whether or not your partner is a woman. Okay. Yeah, I don't think the sex quite matters. It doesn't matter, male, female, whatever you'd like to throw on there. Um, I think it just has to do with, at least from my personal experience, is my zoo exclusivity that makes things a little difficult. Right. For me, which I think is relatively uncommon in the zoo community, I have zero attraction to humans in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. I don't have any attraction physically. I don't have any virtually zero attraction emotionally. I like the way that my girlfriend will test me sometimes. She likes to show me pictures of women who are supposed to be very sexually attractive. So she'll show me quote unquote boobs McKenzie with giant hooters and huge lips and a butt that sticks out like a trash can. And I have to ask her, it's like, is there something wrong with her? It's like, does that hurt? Like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so that that's definitely what's made like the biggest issue in our relationship is just the fact that I don't have any attraction and she expects that attraction from me and without me giving that attraction, then it just kind of makes things difficult. So in, in, in kind of a yeah, sense, that's, that's one way to put it. Difficult? <laughs> Being in a relationship with someone who is you're supposed to be an intimate. I'm, I'm laughing with you, not at you, because I've experienced this. Being in an intimate relationship with another human being and with who, uh, to whom you are supposed to be attracted, when you're not attracted to them in that way at all, it does make it, as you say, difficult <laughs> to maintain that relationship. Mm-hmm. I think that's the understatement of the day. And again, I am laughing with you, not at you, because I have walked that road. And wow, that is hard um, it, because yeah. you're not feeling it and they know you're not feeling it. And there's, there's a hurtfulness that comes from that, at least in my experience, an unintentional hurtfulness, and that can lead to all sorts mm-hmm. of bruised feelings and difficult emotions and, and really deep challenges. So but, essentially, um, you one have piece what? of advice I could definitely give to Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say one piece of advice I could definitely give to anyone who's in a position similar to what I am is communication is key. Be open about yes, absolutely everything yes. and try not to hide anything. Yes, one hundred percent. We need to communicate. Very, very, Oh my God, that is the best advice you can possibly give to someone. Something I definitely learned from this relationship is 
both her and I know about my feelings. We talk about everything and we have an understanding of everything, which is why we're still together. Right. Is because we've talked things out. We've come to an understanding that neither of us are trying to hurt each other. This is just who we are and we make it work. Right. And I was going to say, your, your, your relationship with her, in, in, in one sense, is very much kind of like if you actually were asexual. You're human asexual. Uh, and it's pretty much and there are different types of asexuality but they're completely compatible with relationships it just takes that understanding of you know this is this is what you can expect from me and if you're expecting something different then you know we need to we need to understand <laughs> we need to come to a better understanding if you're expecting something different and uh, something I want to say for the audience by the way I have gotten to talk to your girlfriend doodle and she is super cool like uh, being able to talk to her about zooey stuff when she's not a zoo is kind of mind-blowing. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a like, somewhat loaded question. Oh, more if you loaded look questions? back, or even not... Yay, uh, um, my uh, favorite. Astonishingly enough, uh, <laughs> an emotionally loaded question during this emotionally loaded and fascinating conversation. Uh, if, if you could wave a magic wand, would you prefer to have your relationship with your girlfriend as a friendship and uh, not have the intimate component to it again if you could just wave a magic wand and maintain that that relationship with your girlfriend as a friendship would you choose that over the intimate component being added or would you not um well i'd say if she's listening to this or when she does please don't kill me with a wooden spoon but yes <laughs> you know <Fair laughs> that's enough. a very it's kind of a yep. little more loaded i yeah. might might cut that out guys <laughs> i understand that that was more uh, personally i was wondering about that I was in a situation in my life quite a while ago i am dating way back in in these uh, memories myself oh i've read um, about it I, there's others that oh that's right <laughs> i sometimes forget <laughs> right it's in a book so <laughs> fuck so much for maintaining personal privacy whoops yeah right there was Whoops. that and uh it, it i just i remember there were years in my relationship that relationship that i'm sure you're thinking of that was in the book i just wished that in and somehow we could go back to the friendship and and remove the complexity and, and difficulty of the intimacy and uh unfortunately that's difficult to do once intimacy is loaded in though i know i tried very hard to find a path to that it was not successful and um, maybe that's if this component does stay in the podcast, that's something for others to think on uh, in, in, in initiating intimate relationships with humans uh, to, th to, be, to think uh, carefully on that because the risk is that the intimate relationship can eat the friendship and destroy it. Right. Uh, and I, I've learned that the hard way myself and I know that I would be extraordinarily cautious uh, now looking back on adding intimacy to a human relationship because I have seen more than one lost as a direct result of that, mm. unfortunately. Yep, and been through that myself, so I can totally agree with that. I definitely advice for anyone who's thinking about human relationship while being zoo exclusive. Think about that hard. <laughs> definitely think yeah. about that. Um, if yeah. you are truly zoo exclusive, I do not recommend getting in a human relationship. It is extremely difficult. And unless you are a person who enjoys that kind of difficulty, I would definitely say <laughs> steer away from I that. love when my life is more difficult. Put me on hard mode. Yeah, these, these are it's so much great. I love needed complexity. <laughs> these are lessons that I think, of, perhaps for listeners and, and others, 
are born of direct personal experience, hard-won personal experience. And I wish I would have known this before I stumbled into that kind of intimate relationship uh, uh, because I would have thought more carefully about it uh, at the time. And uh, I do hope that this uh, provides others with the opportunity to think on it. Uh, we're not, I don't think either of us are telling people what to do or what not to do, uh, simply uh, sharing our own experience and suggesting that the difficulty and complexity and challenge uh, and the fact that there's really no reverse button uh, be thought on carefully before adding an intimate component to a treasured friendship. Right. Uh, and that reverse button doesn't seem to be very easy to find if it exists at all. And uh, a, a cherished friendship is is incredibly painful to lose. And uh, I would I would think that we all want to be careful in squandering that with the addition of intimacy if there's a risk of losing the friendship as well. Right. So you have actually ended up giving us some really good Zooey advice. Right. What other sorts of life lessons would you want to impart on others trying to navigate their own Zooey life? So one that you said in any human com relationship, communicate. Very important. Um, Definitely communicate. Mm -hmm. and, and another one, you know, if you're going to be in an intimate relationship with a human, really think about doing that if you're so exclusive before you jump into it. Uh, what else would you mm -hmm. suggest? Definitely, you want to make sure to... Oh, go ahead. Uh, oh, no, I was saying definitely just make sure to think about it before, as Fausti was saying, before adding on that intimate component to the friendship it just definitely think about that before jumping into that ship and make sure that you are 100 percent prepared for what that comes with mm -hmm. well said anything else you would add uh, from your experience in terms of uh, a bits of distilled wisdom that you would seek to share with the rest of the community um the only other than mares are awesome because we already know that <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah you love mares go on in <laughs> Like, yes, I don't really have any more advice on the human relationship aspect, but I definitely recommend that if you, it's best to do research on the species of your choice. If you are into horses, if you're into stallions, you're into mares, you're into geldings, do research into them and know everything there is to know about the physical aspects of them, of just basic basics. Make sure you know everything there and listen to them as much as you possibly can. They will teach you a lot, but you need to listen. Well said. And once that communication is established in the relationship, it can definitely flourish. You just need to make sure that there is a good communication between well both. Said. Yeah, definitely. That could be an Ask Zooey <coughs> answer right there. That, yeah. was, that was perfect. You know what's <laughs> funny is that <laughs> it very much is the Ask Zooey yeah. answer for today. <laughs> listen. Yeah, it's true, actually. Listen to your partners. Yeah. <laughs> listen. <laughs> listen. Put on those listening ears and listen to what they got to tell you. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to answer these questions, some of which are certainly uh, uh, personal and emotional, and I, I, I believe uh, not always easy to answer with the honesty and insight that you have provided. Yeah. And I'm grateful for the sharing that you've um, trusted the podcast with, and I know that it is uh, a helpful thing for others to hear and that this kind of honest uh, personal feedback uh, there's no substitute for it and we are certainly grateful for the time and uh, attention that you provided and we certainly hope that your relationships all of them uh, continue to flourish as yeah. you go forward i agree thanks and i'm glad i can help you were fantastic it was great having you you're a fantastic guest uh, i would give you a big hug hey. if i could <laughs> um 
Yep. Internet high five. Internet high five. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Doodle. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really you. appreciate you. Uh, coming up, there is more zooier than now, so stick around for more after this. Welcome back to another exotic, erotic, egregious episode of Ask Zooey, the go-to cross-species sex advice show for the zoos who and even a few others to boot. I'm your great dame with a great name. Yes, ladies, these locks are real. Zooey. And I'm the rat whose goggles joggle when he's boggled. Goggle! We're so excited that you're back for our fifth episode working with Zooier Than Now. After the last episode, we got a flood of human submissions that we're really excited to tackle. Remember, folks, you can send submissions through the form at zoo.wtf or, if you swing that way, contact us through our Twitter account at, at AskZooey. That's A-S-K-Z-O-O-E-Y. That poor account seems a little neglected, Zooey. Honey, it's all about keeping atop what comes first, and Twitter serves me, not the other way around. <laughs> well, okay. I'll own up to being a bit less than obsessed with Twitter-tastic efforts at Outreach, and I know we can do better. So let me encourage everyone to send in even your simplest questions on Twitter. I'll find time in the day's adventures to share a thought or two when it counts. All right, up first, we have a big question from Unsure in the UK. <laughs> I do so love a British accent. So honey, before we go one step further, do feel free to call me anytime. <laughs> Unsure writes, Dear Zooey, my boyfriend and I have a very comfortable relationship. We've been dating for a number of years, and as much as I love taking his massive canine cock, sometimes I want to be on top. But I'm not sure how to approach this question with him to make sure it's something he's comfortable with. Beyond that, I'm also not sure how to even go about it if he says yes. In short, Zooey, I wonder if you can explain how to have mutually enjoyable, consensual anal sex with a beloved companion. What a question. I think it's safe to say this question is on a lot of people's minds. Safe, consensual, and mutually enjoyable are definitely the key words, as always. Pushing a bit deeper into the subject, Handsome, let's take a closer look at some of the brass tacks details. Well, before we get into the tacks, brass or otherwise, let's step back and remind ourselves off the bat that sex, all forms of intimacy including sex, requires trust and listening and understanding and care. As to the tax in question, here's where things get specific. It's a simple, sexy fact that not everyone, of whatever species, is going to be interested in anal sex. Straight up, it goes without saying, though we're saying it just to be triple clear, that respecting those boundaries is absolutely the first, and second, and third inviolate rule when it comes to such matters. No exceptions, no hesitation, no prevarication. No means no. And that's an answer that isn't up to debate. First, second, third, and fourth. That rule rules the roost. Just as our dear little toggle says in that sexy little voice of his. <laughs> that bottom level basic premise sets solidly in stone. Let's get into some of those sharp brass points of truth. When it comes to things related to bottoms, it should come as no surprise to you. If you're a gay man, that making sure things are clean is a must. However, no douching. A simple walk in the park should really do the trick. And another no-brainer as a male familiar with anal sex, you're going to want to use lots and lots of lube. Our experts don't recommend condoms simply because they can be a little uncomfortable for the receptive party. But if you do feel condoms are necessary, more lube is necessitated as well. If you plan to play with fingers, 
Mind your nails and claws, folks. Personally, as a rat, I don't like fingers in my butt for, for precisely this reason. Your partner's rumps are soft and sensitive, so it's incredibly important to be mindful of your calluses and nails. Actual entry requires gentle coaxing. After she or he has let you know in no uncertain terms that it's a green light to sink a bit deeper into the topic. <laughs> your partner does need to be relaxed, which, again, as a male who's had things stroked passionately into his all-but-begging butt, you should be aware of. <laughs> Orgasms are actually great for this. An orgasming boy of any species naturally clenches and relaxes his sphincter rhythmically. Timing is very important for this technique of entry, but it's almost inevitable that you'll be able to slide in. This technique works for the ladies as well, so long as she's relaxed enough and she's not so full of spunk that she ends up wiggling away from things in her ecstasy. Apart from catching things mid-orgasm, if you help your booty-begging boy to relax, and you're very gentle and persistent and generous with the lube, you can apply a little bit of pressure to help him ease onto your cock. Slow and steady, and remember to pay attention to your partner. As always, even if he or she says yes to entering, they can change their minds at any time. You, it goes without saying, but we're saying it anyway just to be triple sure, will always and forever respect that. This really is an activity that requires trust, and you can very well lose that trust if you don't absolutely and immediately respect your partner's desires. One of our experts confessed that, in a moment of heated passion, they lost that trust with their partner permanently, even after years of mutually enjoying penetrative sex. It only takes one moment. So consider this when you and your partner are deciding what sexual activities work best for your relationship. Is the potential orgasm worth the risk of losing a deep, trusting bond you've fostered over years of your relationship? Not everything's about sticking that thing someplace and moving around until things get sticky. There's so much more, and so much on the line when you take trust in your hands, or in other parts of your anatomy, in shared pleasure like this. Always, always, always listen to your partner. Not just their voice, but their entire body at all times. Some partners, mostly of the two-legged persuasion, may have a cultural taboo when it comes to the concept of anal sex, but that's not universal amongst everyone, and it certainly is not as common when we move outside of the tight bubble of human ex expectations. For lots of folks, what's first and foremost is finding and sharing intimate physical activities that bring loving partners close to each other. Uh, physically, yes, but also emotionally and spiritually. Furthermore, Open-minded of our peers, however many legs they may have carrying them along the path of life, the measure of what's a welcome addition to sex is whether it's good for everyone involved. Feels good, and also feels safe, and closeness encouraging for catchers and pitchers alike. Don't assume that just because some humans think anal sex is some big taboo that exists merely to be transgressed or challenged, somehow everyone feels that way. Not at all, not at all. That depends on your partner. And to answer that question, you must be good at listening and respecting what they are saying, however they choose to say it. That was a fantastic question, I'm sure. I hope this helps you and your partner decide what's best for you. It's really no different from any other sort of sexy good fun shared between the two of you. Respect and consideration and listening and caring aren't unique to anal sex or to any sex of any kind, or elk to sex at all. Stick with those basics and wherever you two frisky folks are thinking about sticking things, You'll come out on the other end with smiles all around. And with that, here's our next question from Is She Interested in Indiana? 
Dear Zooey, I volunteer at a place with an absolutely gorgeous mule. I have a huge crush on her, but she sends me mixed signals. Sometimes she'll just ignore me when I groom or pet her, but other times she'll go right up to my chest and nuzzle it. Also, whenever I walk her back to her paddock, she'll pee while looking at me and then wink while she walks away. Do you think she wants to be more than just co-workers? Oh boy, this right here is classic love story in the making. For those listening at home, we cheerfully confirm that no, winking has nothing to do with batting an eyelash in a four-hooved lady like this. So the big question, is she interested? Mules in general tend to have a certain inbuilt proclivity to gravitate towards humans, whether the interest is platonic or perhaps a bit more. From what you've told us in your note, Unsure, we both think it's clear that she likes you. After all, she's quite clearly showing you affection. The real question is whether or not your more than platonic turn of thought is to go requited or not. As to that, worrying her is quite simple. No more and no less, it's all about sharing with her your extra time. Spend a little longer grooming her. Show her that you care. And most importantly, show her your intent. She may be ignoring you when you groom her because you haven't been stallion enough to let her know that you're interested. Though, I have to wonder if you haven't already made your move since she's given you a wink. She's talking. You're listening. That's always the right place to start. For those of you who are equine illiterate, an amorous mare, whether horse or mule, will flex her vulva for potential suitors when she's feeling the heat, whether an actual esterus or simply happy to receive carnal attention at that point in time. This is called winking. When spending time together, pay attention to how she reacts to you. If she's comfortable with you being near her hindquarters and she's raising her tail for you, those generally are ways for her to let you know that she sees you as a potential mate. If she pulls away or shows signs of discomfort at your advances, sorry big boy, but for now, you're barking up the no tree of polite refusal. Mules are proud, intelligent, and willful. She will absolutely let you know her intentions. <laughs> Basically, if and when things have moved a bit further and you show her yours, don't be surprised when she shows you whether things are all ahead go or nope, not now, fella. Thanks so much for showing us that you're interested. In our humble opinions, it does sound like your crush has already returned in kind by that big girl. And we wish you the best of luck if the two of you decide to go ahead and take that relationship to the next level. A wink like that is nothing to scoff at. Oh no, not even a hint of a scoff. <laughs> Our last question for the evening comes from I'll be in the lab in Livermore. In the lab writes, Dear Zooey, My aunt has a beautiful chocolate lab who I've been taking care of since we were both just wee young pups. As we grew up together, our love blossomed deeper and deeper and eventually we took things to the next level. She's truly amazing. And our sex together is just so spectacularly, consistently, mutually satisfying. Despite all that, I find myself racked with guilt after each encounter since, well, in all words, she belongs to my aunt. I haven't told my aunt about our secret trysts, since basically I worry she wouldn't approve even though I don't really know or not. My girl and I are madly in love. Everything about our time together is just so great for both of us, but should I really keep our relationship going or... Should I put an end to it since she belongs to another? With this question, In the Lab has also gently stroked a very hot button issue in the zoo community. Right up front, all of us here feel like we know the answer we're supposed to give, but after talking about it with all the zoo on staff around here, we feel the question calls on us to dive a bit deeper, try a bit harder, 
Expect more than the standard wham-bam-thank-you-ma'am kind of reply. First off, I'm going to say that it's very hard and pretty much impossible, if we're going to stay honest and stay legit, for any of us at Ask Zooey, Elk, even anyone at Zooier than thou, to get up on our high horse and preach hypocritically that someone can only be in a relationship with someone four-legged whom they illegally own. My first Zooey experience is with a relative's dog, nobody I owned at, at that time or at any time thereafter. Straight up clandestine rendezvous level shit. Fausti and Kion both had their sexual awakenings with a neighbor's dog, and they've both been upfront and honest about that in public for ages, and stood by those honest recollections. Not only are we not an unusual sample from amongst zoos out there, but really we're about as typical as a typical zoo gets in that regard. Those who came of age with someone they owned are in a very small minority of zoos out there, and that's simply an empirical fact. No judgment, no ethical conclusion, just a fact to set the stage. As such, courting animals that don't belong to us is absolutely a very typical, uh, perhaps the single most typical part of coming of age physically and personally as a zoo. So, I think that when we get into this semantic space, we're reckoning with two very different judgment-deriving systems that are, in such situations, nearly always at odds with one another. On the one paw, We've got the Zooey morality, which recognizes animals as autonomous individuals with the right to choose their own partners for their own reasons on their own terms, with no role for a slave-style owner stepping in to decide who gets to lick or mount whom and when. And then on the other paw, we've got the mundane lingual system of judgment that governs animals as no more or no less than pure personal property. When it comes to zoos and the vagarities of youthful zoo uh, dating, if you will, those two systems are rarely going to agree on what's right and what's not. Again, that's a simple fact and it's a good thing to set out up front. Right. All that said, and after we've done our work in consulting more than a few of our fellow zoos, we're all lined up here with the ethical conclusion that there is nothing morally wrong with courting our four-legged friends who are, in legalistic terms, owned by another human. Non-humans, after all, have not only the ability, but much more so the inalienable right to make the choice to engage in physical, intimate terms with whomever they wish. Consider, if you will, a system in which humans are regarded as property for the ease of understanding this conclusion. If you fall in love with a human woman, do you go to her owner and ask for permission to date your beloved lady friend? Perhaps out of a sense of propriety, or because it's safest, legally, or for some other reason outside the realm of pure ethics. But if her owner says no, do we recognize a moral imperative to honor that choice even though our newly beloved says the exact opposite? No, we as zoos most certainly do not. When we put it in straight up human slavery terms like that, it sounds pretty fucking barbaric, right? In the same way, if we recognize and indeed celebrate the reality of our non-human peers as autonomous agents, both willing and more than eager to make their own informed adult decisions about their own romantic or intimate connections, then there's just no way to make that fundamentally Zoish recognition sit comfortably alongside some sort of moral requirement that we seek acquiescence from human owners prior to accepting intimate overtures from a non-human love interest. It's wet or it's dry. Can't be both. Right then. We're all in perfectly unanimous agreement that, looking at things purely from an ethical or moral zooish perspective, no other sides brought into the mix. Not only is there nothing wrong with your relationship in the lab, but that to make such decisions based solely on the wishes of her owners would be a clear and troubling ethical failure on your part. 
In the land of pure ethics, it's an open and shut case. Ah, but honey, none of us live in the land of pure ethics, and in this degraded old world of real risks and real consequences, we've simply got to mesh that purely perfect moral conclusion with the hard facts of living responsible lives. To ourselves, to our communities, and most of all, to our non-human partners themselves. Even among humans, if you have a tryst with a young woman without her father's permission, whilst we may all nowadays agree that what we've done is not morally wrong, we're also going to face up to the fact that there could be consequences if he's inclined to pull out his shotgun. And as backwards as it is morally, in our society, non-humans are, despite many efforts to break in new paradigms and less slavery-based models, legally recognized as property. So we suggest that while you shouldn't feel bad morally or ethically about your relationship, Basic precautions and practical considerations should be a co-equal concern of yours. She can't balance that side of things. They're human issues. And as the human in your relationship, it's 100% up to you to do so on the behalf of both of you. Do not let your moral clarity cloud the practical responsibilities placed on your shoulders as the result of your wonderful relationship, ITL. You have our blessing as Zulish examples in our own earlier, younger <laughs> lives. And as Zoomish folks always putting the views and interests of the non-humans involved first and foremost. But, don't be stupid or reckless. For both your sake and for your beautiful lab's sake, we have a responsibility to our partner to keep them safe. And that always comes before our own needs and desires. Thanks for your very topical letter. We've got a number of excellent questions piling up from our listeners. If you haven't heard your question answered today, don't give up. There's always more Zooey advice in store for every single episode. That said, we are indeed out of time. We appreciate each and every one of our fabulous listeners for tuning in every month. We look forward to seeing you all again for more tales of cross-species romance. We'll see you next time. Same zoo time, same zoo channel. Before we finish up this episode, I'd like to offer my personal thanks to all the listeners who have written in in recent months to send their good wishes my way as I continue my deadly dance with cancer. I'm not speaking metaphorically when I say that it's made a tremendous difference for me during these challenging months, and I truly am grateful to know that folks are sending good thoughts my way. Currently, I'm in a bit of a good news, bad news situation in regards to that cancer. On the one hand, after months of targeted chemotherapy treatment, all of my body scans have recently come back showing zero tumor load. Put another way, I don't show any cancerous growth in my lungs or anywhere else, which was certainly not the case a few months back. I have uh, stage four malignant melanoma, just for reference. On the other hand, my latest brain MRI last week shows one minuscule growth in my cerebellum. It's new since February, and that is a serious concern. Overall, I remain in a very delicate position statistically. The appearance of that one 7mm lesion is associated with bad outcomes for patients with cancer of this type. And by bad outcome, we mean you die, and quickly, just to be clear. That said, I'm working with a great team of medical professionals, and we're far from ready to give up on things. Although it's a tough road ahead, and there's absolutely no guarantees... I'm going to continue working towards a post-cancer future. It may seem impossible, but I've done enough impossible things in my life to know that the first step is always a willingness to invest 100% of oneself in the effort. I can say I'm fully and totally invested in this at this point. Truth is, the movie ends the same way for all of us mammals. We're mortal, and we die. 
It's only a question of how and when. And that's easier to say, of course, when the we die part is in some nebulous far future, not something likely to happen right away. It feels different when it's closer. Whatever the case, I'm grateful for the time I've had and grateful for the support I've received during this challenging turn of events health-wise. Know that whatever happens, I'm deeply honored to have shared my time with this community. And with that, and on behalf of all of us who make Zooier Than Thou possible, our sincere thanks, friends, for your support of Zooier Than Thou. You can subscribe to the podcast via our RSS feed. Just point your favorite podcast client at rss.zoo.wtf and off you go! Maybe you'll even find Toggle's balls when you do it. (laughs) Our podcast website is, yep, zoo.wtf, Twitter, at Zooier Than Thou, and you can follow Zooey's naughty advice at Ask Zooey, Z-O-O-E-Y. A reminder that we have a form that enables anonymous submissions to the podcast on our website, zoo.wtf. You can tell us all the intimate details of your sex life, ask Zooey about the ethics of fence hopping, or scream new insulting epithets at us that we will use to introduce ourselves at the beginning of each episode. You can contact me, co-host Fausti, through my website, predictably found at fausti.org. Or you can entrust your missive to a messenger pigeon addressed to Fausti, care of Zooey Wilderness of Pennsylvania, and I'll be sure to get it. The pigeons and I, we've got a deal worked out, eh? Zooier Than Thou has no DRM, so you can pirate each episode and burn them on a blank DVD to give to to all your friends. (laughs) Having some trouble there, Buckwheat, eh? Fuck you. All non-humans on our writing staff have given their consent to the humans to share their tawdriest, most erotic stories with our listeners. And let me tell you, some of those stories are (laughs) just... The most beautiful thing in the world is to share a relationship of mutual trust and love with someone who outweighs you by an order of magnitude, who could kill you with a single kick, and yet who puts up with your silly human idiocy for reasons hard to fathom. That's what it means to be loved by a horse, and there's no experience in the world that comes even close. Be nice to each other, folks. It's still the sexiest, zooiest thing you can do. Meanwhile, I'm still old, and Toggle says it's time for my afternoon nap. I blame it. <laughs> and this is Toggle, the rat next door, and you've almost finished listening to Zooier Than Thou. Stay defiant, fellow zoos. We'll see you next time you feel like howling at the moon. You know, they don't actually see us, Toggle. It's a fucking podcast. They hear us. Sheesh. Jesus Christ.